What you're witnessing in that moment is Debbie living out what Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 12, that every single one of us who is part of the body of Christ, every single one of us is an indispensable part of the whole. That's a word that doesn't get thrown around that often in this world. We live in a very dispensable world. Sports teams have dispensable athletes. Corporations have dispensable employees. We live in a society where we recycle and dispense of one another so easily, but there's this picture in Scripture in 1 Corinthians 12 that says that every single part of the whole is indispensable. And what that means is that Debbie, as she leans into that, is as essential, as integral as I am to the life of this church, as you are, as we are. And as we gather in this moment, can we just thank Debbie and her leadership for bringing this moment to inspire me? As you pointed up, I love that. Well, in this moment, as we gather, I want to say welcome. My name is Drew. I'm the senior pastor and head of staff, and such a joy it is in this season. We're, we're going through the book of the Bible called Ecclesiastes. It's one of 66 books in the Bible. It's found in the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament. And there's a phrase that's found in that book that if you don't understand that phrase, this, this book does not make sense. And the phrase is this, under the... Now, sun, the great big ball of fire in the sky, that, that phrase which is used 30 times in the book of Ecclesiastes means a perspective from a human point of view. It's an earthly perspective. It's a, it's a perspective that says that all you see is all there is. It's a perspective that doesn't take God into account. It's a perspective that doesn't take any eternal purpose into account. It, it says that basically that, you know, what you see is what you get, and perhaps we're just a cosmic accident. There's no design. There's no purpose. There's no meaning. And if you live a life under the sun with that perspective, without God, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, then you're going you're gonna to reach the end of the road, and you're going to realize that life is meaningless, and it's pointless. And it's a vanity of vanities. But thankfully, Scripture reveals that there's not just one truth, one perspective. There's two truths. There's an above-the-sun perspective, a view from God's point of view that says that life is so much more than just what you see because there's a creator, that there's eternal purpose and meaning. And as we go throughout life and as we begin to interact with each other, as we consider the purpose of work and of pleasure and of eating... There's actually two truths, an under-the-sun truth and an above-the-sun truth. And as it was shared earlier, the question is this, is there life after death? The writer of Ecclesiastes allows our mind, our soul, as it were, to go there if there was no God. And as we do each week, we, we go down the route of under the sun, if there is no God, is there life after death? And then we're going to take another look at what Scripture says about from God's point of view, can we answer that question? How does that change how we live today? If you've missed any of those sermons, you can go on our website, you can go on the iTunes, you can download those podcasts. But right now, let's turn our hearts and our minds without opening up God's Word. Let's open up our ears and our hearts and our minds as we hear the reading of God's Word. the Corinthians. But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. 
and we who are living will also be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Cosme, thank you for reading that above the sun perspective. Now let's take a look at that under the sun perspective. Pull out your Bibles. If you didn't bring one, there's a red book in front of you in the pew. That's our pew Bible. If you're in the front row, there's a little cubby right behind your leg. And that red book is our pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, please take that one with you. Would much rather you have it in your life, transforming your life rather than sitting here in the pew all week. And as we turn to Ecclesiastes 3, verses 18 through 22, it's on page 538 in that red book in your pew Bible. And I'm reading through the New Revised Standard Version if you're with us here or if you're joining us online. And again, this reading in a moment is an under-the-sun perspective. Here, this is God's Word. I said in my heart with regard to human beings that God is testing them to show that they are but animals. For the fate of humans and the fate of animals is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and humans have no advantage over the animals, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and all turn to dust again. Who knows whether the human spirit goes upward and the spirit of animals goes downward to the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better, that all should enjoy their work, for that is their lot. Who can bring them to see what will be after them? This, my friends, concludes the reading of God's Word. As you listen to those two verses, it seems completely contradictory in some ways, and that's the point of this sermon series, that there are two truths. There's an under-the-sun perspective, and there's an above-the-sun perspective. So again, let's, let's explore what this life could look like from the writer of Ecclesiastes. What could life look like if there is no God, if there is no purpose, if truly we are, as a friend of mine says, Drew, we're just a cosmic accident. And actually, we have the, the consciousness, we have the awareness to know that we're an accident. I mean, think about that for a moment. This is the life that he lives. And so how do we deal with that reality and under-the-sun perspective? Well, there's a lot of ways that we deal with death. And I want to summarize some of those. Some of you are taking notes. Some of you have a phenomenal memory. But I'm going to list a number of ways that we can approach death from an under-the-sun perspective. The first is a monistic point of view. This is uh, Eastern religion. And in Eastern spirituality, it says this, that you've got to deny death because it's just an illusion. It's not real. This world that you see, the physical, it's, it's just an illusion, and one day we're going to be all part of one. Consciousness. And there's different strains within that, but the point is just deny death because it's an illusion. Or there's a stoic view. It's, oh, no, 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 no. You need to endure death because it's not an illusion. It's, it's very real. And you've got to be tough. You've got to set your jaw against it. Think about Jimmy Cagney spitting at death, 
fierce women and men who stand in the face of death that say, oh, it's real. Take your best shot. I'm going to endure it. It's the stoic view. There's a dualistic view. How many of you have read the book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People? That's a modern-day exploration of this dualistic philosophy. It says that we live in a world of opposing forces. There's good and there's evil. There's life and there's death. And God, don't, don't blame God for death, but God can't do anything about it, and therefore you kind of live in this reality that sometimes, yeah, bad things happen to good people, so therefore the dualistic view says deal with it. Life isn't fair. And when you have that awareness, you can deal with it. There's an existential point of view. It says this, you've got to defy death. Because even though there's no purpose, even though there's no meaning, what's, what's your best choice? You live a life of beauty. You live a life of meaning. You live a life of purpose. Stand in the face of death and defy it. Choose to live with life and with joy. But there is no life after. You just defy it. There's a hedonistic approach. We're good at this. And it says this, avoid death because death sucks. Death is awful. Eat, drink, be merry. Oh, you just got diagnosed? Go on a vacation. Just don't think about it. You just lost that loved one? Let's go shopping. Let's take your mind off of it. That's what the writer of Ecclesiastes at the end of his summary says. There's nothing better under the sun. If, if there is no point, if, if we're no different than animals, if we all just kind of return back to the earth, then I guess you just enjoy life, eat, drink, and be merry. That's a hedonistic point of view. There's a religious point of view. And I know some of you are here, and you might think that what we are doing is religion. Let me tell you, it is not religion. This is not human-made religion, because human-made religion says this regards to death. You've got to beat death. You've got to be good. You've got to measure up. You've got to do enough. You've got to avoid evil. And if you do that, if you're good enough, if you measure up, you'll beat death at the end of your life. But oh, if you don't measure up, if you don't pray your prayers, if you don't show up to church, if you don't memorize scripture, you don't quite cut it. That is a human-made religious point of view. Or, or now, and this is so many ways you can describe this, but I'll say it this way. There's a naturalistic point of view, and it, it simply says this, that death, you should just embrace it because it's natural. We all die. And I want you just to imagine it as this dreamless sleep that we're just a a drop going back into the ocean, then it's this peaceful cessation of life, and therefore, it's okay. Just give in. Don't fight it. Befriend it. Embrace it. It's natural. Now, every single one of us, apart from God, can, can lean towards these under-the-sun perspectives on how to deal with death. And by the way, I haven't even answered the question of is there life after death, but I have to focus on this for a moment. And I imagine that for some of you, this is a little uncomfortable. How many of you are either glad that you didn't bring somebody today for the first time or kind of regret that you brought somebody for the first time, maybe in this moment? Okay, wow, okay. Well, if you're honest, you'd put your hand up because let me, let me say it this way. We don't like to talk about death. And something happened in our Western world about 175 years ago where we stopped talking about death. It became a faux pas. It became this, this untouchable subject. 
You see, throughout human history, leading up to that moment, nobody talked about sex, and everybody talked about death. About 175 years ago, it got switched. Now all we do is talk about sex, and we don't talk about death. Death doesn't sell, sex sells. We are so uncomfortable talking about death, we have no idea how to deal with it. And in many ways, we've distanced ourselves from death so much that some of you, if you had any idea the slaughter that comes to bring your food to your plate, you would be horrified. We've distanced ourselves so much that, that we can actually say to somebody at their celebration of life and say, oh, they look, they look so beautiful. We bring psychologists in when somebody witnesses a death because our society has no idea how to handle death. We don't train people. We don't equip people. We don't give them the resources to navigate it. And so we're actually at this point in the Western world in human history where we are talking about death less than any other society before us, and it's destroying us. It's desensitizing us. And it's causing us to live in tremendous fear. You see, in under-the-sun perspective, if you were to follow any of those ways, actually, it doesn't give you hope, it doesn't give you courage, it doesn't give you a foundation from which to live on. Sir Walter Scott, and I love this quote, he says this. He says, O mighty death, and, and by the way, forgive the thou's in the high English language here, but you'll follow this. It says this, O mighty death, those whom none other could convince, thou hast persuaded. Those whom all other have flattered, thou hast despised. Thou hast fetched all greatness, all the pride, all the power, all the ambition of all of humanity, and covered it all over with these two little words on a gravestone. Here lies all the ambition, all the accomplishments, all the greatness that has ever been done can be covered up by those two little words because death is so strong. Here lies Winston Churchill. Here lies Mother Teresa. Same phrase, here lies Adolf Hitler. Here lies the undeserving. Here lies the deserving. Here lies your loved ones. You see, you can't deny death. You can't avoid death. You can't, you can't suppress it. You can't avoid it. You can't just endure it because it is powerful. And we live our lives filled with tremendous fear because of it. There's a sociologist who's, who's not a believer by the name of Peter Berger who says this, that because of this, we live in a world without windows. I want you to imagine this. Imagine if you were in your car. Imagine yourself in your car. Some of you don't own cars. Imagine yourself in a friend's car or in an Uber. You're inside the car. Now, you're inside that car, but that car has no windows. They're boarded up. You can't see out. What you see is what you get. Everything's there on the inside. You've got the steering wheel. You've got the pedals. You've got the, the knobs. You've got everything, the air conditioning. You can, you can recline. You can do all the things that you can do inside. Now imagine if you were to drive that car, and if you were to figure out how to turn it on, and you actually press the pedal, you began to move. Imagine what that, would ex that experience would be like inside a vehicle, unable to see what's on the outside. That as you're driving, you have no idea if what's happening on the inside 
is affecting anything on the outside? Do you respond to anything? All you have is what you see. It's right there. You might be filled with fear because all of a sudden you hear noises, you hear rumbling. Some of you will slam into a brick wall. Some of you will go off. Go off the cliff's edge. And what you see is what you get. And if there's nothing beyond this, there, of course, there's tremendous fear. The last thing you want to do if you begin to realize, you put two to two together, that actually I am moving, the last thing you want to do is for that vehicle to stop. In the same way, under the sun, if there is no God, your life is a car without windows. You have no idea anything beyond what you see. And yes, you might choose to put it on cruise control. You might put on a good song. You might turn up the air conditioning. You might invite people along with you. But at the end of the day, you have no idea where that vehicle is going. And here's the beauty of what Scripture says, that life actually isn't just a life under the sun, that there is an above-the-sun perspective, that actually God enters into our reality and speaks the truth, and I'll say it this way, gives us windows to see out of this life, this physical life here and now, and actually gives us a perspective that is so much grander, so much, much, more, much, much more fantastic. Think about when you do drive with windows you realize that as you look out there, it changes what you do in here. You, you restrain sometimes the gas pedal. You sometimes turn in response to all those things and you're not driving filled with fear because you know you're just gonna show up at your friend's house, at grandma's house, at your son's house, at a long lost friend's house, at the beginning of a vacation, and at the end of the road, you actually pull into their driveway, you put it in a park, and you turn off the key because you've, you've arrived. The only way you could do that is if there was windows to your car in the same way, and I'll get to it in the moment of what that window looks like and what's on the other side of that window. I wanna show you a story. I want you to hear it, I want you to see it, I want you to feel it of someone, though they are in God's presence right now, is very much still a part of this faith community who lived her life with windows. And it changed how she lived, changed how she loved. And before we get to this above the sun perspective, I want you to see it in technicolor. This is Sharon's life. Take a look. It was like somebody hit me that God wanted us to know in the beginning he was there. He's eternal. And then he wanted us to know he's the creator. And I felt such a connection that, that he identifies himself right away as an eternal creator. And as a creative person, it gave profound meaning to my life. I'm Sharon Lawrence. I'm married to Randy Williams, who also goes to Bel Air Church. My mom was, she was an artist and she was a teacher. My mom was my very best friend. And really, I think the best way I could describe her is she was a dancing, singing, three alarm fire. 
Sharon had a great impact on people all over the world, on her children, her grandchildren, and me. This is the Ishtar Gate. Isn't it gorgeous? Oh my gosh, oh my gosh. If you, <laughs> I'm too excited. If you look, you can see this one right here. It's five different animals together. It's a scorpion and a bird, and I think it's a lion. I'm in a really odd place in that um, I'm not able to work. I, I've had pancreatic cancer, stage four metastasized. Now I was diagnosed almost two years ago. That Viktor Frankl book, it really dawned on me that these people in these concentration camps, when they gave up, they died. And so the people who didn't give up, who had some meaning to live for, whatever it might be, and they made it to the end, they lived. They were the ones who got out. And so I don't, I don't want to die one minute before God takes me. I feel good right now. I may not feel good at tomorrow or next week or whatever. I don't know what God has for me. I do not know what God has for me ahead. But I'm here to fight the battle because when I lay down, then I've lost. That's what I've learned from all of this. <laughs> and also God is good all the time. I actually asked my mom if I could be her caregiver, and I told her that it would be my honor. And, you know, she was such a mom that she worried about the toll that it would take on me. And I told her, this is going to be the greatest accomplishment of my life. And it was. No matter how sick you are, how difficult your life has been, if you just do everything you can to get back up, and sometimes that's really hard and you have to go talk to somebody, um, whether it's a pastor or whomever, to just sort of rethink where you are because you've gotten so far down. But that, but that these experiences don't have to submerge you. I used to tell that to my students and they would say, well, how many times do I have to get up? And I go, one more time. It's always just one more time. She was in the hospital bed here and she turned to me and it was like she used all of the energy, every bit of gumption that she had to form these two words, to leave me with this one thought. And she looked at me and she said, best friend. And I said, best friend. And she went, yeah. And then she rolled on her back and looked at the ceiling and went, yeah. Because Sharon had taught sons and daughters of the Amir royal family and others, uh, diplomats included, after I notified the dean of her university, starting at two in the morning, I got calls from the Amir's family, from seven general officers, as well as the ambassador and other diplomats. She named all of her paintings. This one she named, I'm Listening. Uh, in this painting she named, Do You Hear Me Talking? And this one, I Have Nothing Left to Say. Now this final painting, uh, she hadn't finished it, nor had she titled it. So I'm going to title it, uh, I Am Not Finished Speaking. And I want to leave a legacy of love for the people that have been good to me and that I love and, and a legacy of being kind to people whether I know them or I just meet them on the street. But I think we leave how we treat people and, um, and so I try to treat people well and love people.
Sharon's family, friends, thank you for being here for Sharon, Sharon's life with us. And as I got to know her, if I can put it this way, that it seemed as if Sharon had a bumper sticker on the window of her life, a bumper sticker that came from Scripture, a bumper sticker that enabled her to see through the windows out to this eternity beyond this life. And it was that verse there, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? And that phrase, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? is a perspective that is completely different than all the other perspectives that I just share with you under the sun. Because that perspective doesn't say death is just an illusion. That perspective doesn't say that death should be a friend. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it's difficult. But that perspective says death is an enemy. And it is evil and it is wrong. And it breaks God's heart. And death should be fought. Because the reality of what Scripture says from beginning to end is that death and all of death's friends, fear and cancer and homicide and genocide and all these things are completely contrary to the heart of God. And the amazing thing that I see about Scripture is that it doesn't cheapen death. It doesn't cover over death. It says it is very real, it says it is very awful, and it traces all the way from Genesis 3, all the way to the end of Scripture, the marching power of death. And what does God do? God promises all the way back in Genesis 3 when the first humans chose their way rather than God's way and death entered the picture. God says, I'm gonna do something about it. And God shows up on the scene in the person, fully human, fully God, Jesus Christ. And wherever Jesus go, he fights against death. He hates death. And all of its friends, where there is blindness, he gives sight. Where there is leprosy, he heals the person. Where there's an inability to walk or blindness and all these things. He looks at Lazarus in the tomb and in the Greek language it says that Jesus roared at death. Lazarus come forth. How real is death? How powerful is death? Jesus, before he went to the cross, is in the garden and he is sweating blood. And in his humanness, yet perfectly obedient to God, he says, God, take this cup away from me. He realized how powerful death was. And the amazing thing is that Jesus marched towards death. And he went to the cross. He didn't avoid it. He didn't suppress it. He didn't deny it. He took it on toe-to-toe. And here's the amazing thing. You hear so often in church, Jesus died for your sins. And yes, that's true, but that's only part of the story because we celebrate that three days later, Jesus burst forth from the tomb. And for the first time in human history, there was a, there was a winning streak, by the way. Do you realize this? The longest winning streak of all time, death was on a roll. Death had won every fight, every single fight until death went toe-to-toe with Jesus Christ. 
and death lost. Death has been defeated. And therefore, and therefore, the Apostle Paul says, and I love this, it's like this Muhammad Ali, taunting, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? And I love, I love, I love, I love. Are some of you like this? You know, you see boxers and fighters, and, and this is, it's becoming bigger and bigger, and now it's more than just at the weigh-in, and they kind of stretch it out over months and in different cities where the fighters go toe-to-toe, and they take photos, and they trade off after one another, just kind of ridiculing the other. I'm going to win. No, I'm going to win. Yo mama, yo mama. You know, and it's like this whole thing, on and on and on, right? <laughs> and before the fight, you wonder who's going to win. Who's going to win? Who's going to win? You know what I like to do? This, is, this might sound odd. After the fight, and, I'm, and I'm not, I don't really watch the fights, but I hear about it, I read about it in the newspaper. I like to go back and watch that press conference because I realize that the taunts of the loser are completely empty. That the taunts of the victor are completely valid. Do you realize that death has already been defeated? Past tense. Past tense. That Jesus has already fought the fight, and we are living on the other side of that victory, and we're not going to experience it in all of its fullness until we actually, ready for this? Until we go toe-to-toe with death. But the reality is that all the taunts of death, cancer, your body wasting away, even broken relationships, loss of loved ones. Do you realize that 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 is just death taunting you? And when you have an above the sun perspective that says that death has already been defeated, then you can do what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could do. We had this great conversation, didn't we, brother, earlier this week? You've been here for what, three weeks? four weeks or so, he shared with me, he says, you know, I I hear a lot of churches, they talk a lot about Daniel 3.17, but they don't talk about Daniel 3.18. Daniel 3.17 is basically the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're about to be thrown in a furnace of fire because they're not bowing down and worshiping King Nebuchadnezzar's gods and his golden statue. And basically in 3.17, they say this, we're not going to bow down and worship because God's going to rescue us. God's going to save us. There won't be death. That's only part of the story, right? He says, I love it, that Belair talks about verse 18 as well. Because what verse 18 says? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, even if we die, we will still worship the true Lord. Even if we die. Do you realize how different that is? That's saying this, death doesn't have the last word. Death does not have the last word. It has been defeated. So even when I die, you and I would see it's a joyful pessimism. I'm an optimist, so I even kind of of feel uncomfortable with that word. But but pessimism is, it's this realistic. The truth is that all of us are going to die. We're not avoiding it. We're not suppressing it. We're not trying to deny it. It is real and it is awful. And we need to be a community that sits with one another in that pain, in that sorrow, 
doesn't going to just talk it away or wish it away or say, oh, well, God is good. I'm not going to, let's not talk about it. No, no, you sit with the pain and the realness of it, but you also say with joy, death has been defeated. And the truth of what 1 Corinthians 15, 55, this, this amazing taunting of death, if you read earlier, I want you to read it later, the earlier part of 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 31, I think, it says this, don't you realize that you have to sow something into the ground in order for it to blossom. To plant a seed into the ground, it has to die before it has life. And the Apostle Paul is using this imagery, and he says that death, if you think of it as an executioner, that's the wrong way of thinking of it, because of what God has done. God is the ultimate gardener. It begins, Scripture, in a garden. It ends in a garden city. Jesus is mistaken in the garden tomb after the resurrection as a gardener. And what does he do? He allows himself to go into the ground to burst forth in a newness of life. And here's the amazing thing. This is what I love about this picture of life after death, this above-the-sun perspective, is that life that stretches through all of eternity is both spiritual and it's physical. We see this because Jesus, after his resurrection, he shows up to the disciples. It says that he passes through a wall. What was that like? Completely spiritual. And here's my favorite part. He says this, I'm hungry. Give me something to eat. And he takes a piece of fish and he eats it. And it doesn't just fall to the floor like through Casper the ghost. He digests it. What Scripture says, and this is the picture, this is the window that enables you to look beyond this life. What's the scenery of eternity? Well, in Christ, through faith in Christ, it is an eternity where you will be eating and drinking and dancing and celebrating in relationship with one another in a resurrected body, spiritual and physical. That Revelation, it says that there's a new heaven and a new earth and God will dwell with us here. It will be returned as things began. Do you have any idea what's ahead? Do you have any idea of the glory that's going to be revealed to you? And therefore, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, I consider that all these afflictions, all the sorrow, all the suffering is nothing compared to the, the glory that's going to be revealed to us in Jesus Christ. So here's this great and glorious truth that when you have that perspective, that Jesus is actually in the process of making all things new because he's already defeated death, that the inverse of what's happening here on earth will be true. You see, on earth, we are wasting away. The earth is wasting away. Every diet that you go through is because of your dissatisfaction with your body. The makeup that you wear, the haircut that I get, is my dissatisfaction with my hair, with your skin, on and on and on. We long for perfection. We're not satisfied with the decayingness of our human body. Under the sun, there's ways to deal with it, but in the end of the day, it's meaningless. As Thomas Hobbes says, who is a skeptic, who was a skeptic on his deathbed, he says this, I'm about to take my last voyage, a great leap in the dark. No windows. Completely an under the sun perspective. I'm about to take my last voyage, a great leap in the dark. 
I want you to compare that with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Christian theologian, pastor, activist, had windows of faith that were informed to him by Scripture. What did he say about death? He says, death is the supreme festival on the road to freedom. The supreme festival on the road to freedom? And then when you trace it all the way back and you realize that Jesus doesn't just ask us to come and see, to come and follow, but to come and die, to die to ourselves, to die to our selfishness, to die to our insecurity. Jesus says, if you want to live, you've got to die first. And he's saying, not just at the end of your life, here and right now, that there's things in your life that you think are giving you life, they're causing you to decay. There is cancer in your life, and it's called sin. And it is eating away. And Jesus says, I have defeated that. And if you give that to me, if you don't realize that you have to measure up, defy it, deny it, accept it, no, realize that it has been defeated. Now walk in that victory. And above the sun perspective says this, there is only one option for death. It is an enemy. Until you realize it's an enemy, you'll never get to enjoy all the spoils of victory, of peace, of security, of joy, of confidence, of courage. That's my hope and my prayers that we would be a church that laughs in the face of death, knowing that it's a great enemy, but knowing that we have a greater God that has defeated it. Let's pray. Loving God, as we respond in worship to this great truth, would we reflect on the areas of our life that you want to put to death, to burst forth life and joy and peace and, and goodness, that God, even as we head towards that final day, when our physical bodies will waste away. May we know that even in that, we praise you, we worship you, we glorify you because you, Jesus, have the last word. You give us life, life beyond this, this temporary existence. So let us respond to you in worship, God. We thank you for your love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.